0: Good morning. I get the wonderful privilege to introduce Dr. Kopp to you today. Uh, Vicki and her husband Dan, many of you know them because they served as pastors of this church for 12 years. And, um, and through that relationship that, uh, that they had here, many of you already know uh, Vicki. Some of you um, may not know this about Vicki. Um, Vicki and our own Ginny Fessler are sisters. And Vicky was telling me that she takes full... Uh, Responsibility for the two of you being together, uh, Tim and, 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 and Ginny. She was the one that introduced the two of them together. And then uh, Vicky said, now the rest is history. And so <laughs> we celebrate that. Um, Vicki uh, is a part of our story. Earlier this year, I preached a sermon series on our story and how Mission Church has been a catalyst church for so many people. Um, that have passed through this church, either as students once before, in ministry, in many ways, and have gone on to do great things for God. And, and Vicky's told me that she's going to share that story, but that story, Vicki, is our story as well, too, and I celebrate that. Vicki is a graduate of Point Loma Nazarene College uh, University, and um, she started there with her bachelor's in music, and then got her master's in theology, then she finished up her education at uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary, getting her doctoral of ministry. Vicki and Dan, they served uh, throughout California in Oakland and here in San Diego. She also served in Arizona, in Kansas. And in 2018, the Cameron Church of the Nazarene called her to be pastor. And now she serves as pastor there. And what an honor it is for us, Vicki, to have you here today. Would you come and share the message God's put on your heart?
1: We have a long history with this church. You may not know it, but when I was nine years old, I was baptized at the University Avenue Church of the Nazarene. Anybody here that went to the University Avenue? Okay, we've got a few. Yeah, when I was nine, I was baptized there. The pastor at the time, Herman Burton, also came and did a revival for my dad's church, which was Pacific Beach at the time. And I remember he prayed for me at a really important juncture in my life. So... We go way back. And then Dan was youth pastor here from 78 to 80. And um, then we went off to seminary and then uh, pastored Oakland. And then this church called us back. So Dan left a church in Oakland that was about 100 and was called as a 31-year-old to this church that was running around five to seven hundred. It was, uh, you know, like jumping in the deep end. But the great thing is, there were some wonderful lay people in this church that came around him and mentored him and made him into the leader that he became for the Church of the Nazarene. So we have all kinds of thanks to give to this congregation. Also, Megan and Mackenzie were children in this congregation and I credit part of their wonderfulness to the discipling that they received here in in this church. So you've had a real impact on us. And for me personally, God called me to preach here. Now, I don't know where things are in relation to the old building, but it was approximately over there. And I was sitting next to Ellie and Doris Ogden, and... Dan was preaching on Philippians. By the way, that part of Philippians falls out of his Bible. So he was there often, but he was preaching in Philippians, and the Lord called me to preach. And I just started bawling. I was sitting there, and I remember thinking, people are going to think something's wrong, you know. Uh, But it took us a while to tell the world about it. But when we did, you guys opened the way for me to move from being pastor's wife to being pastor. And pastor's wife. That's a hard transition. It was hard for me, but this congregation was gracious enough to, to do that. So you've had a huge, huge impact on my family. And I, I, when Gordon asked me to preach, that one of the first things that came to my mind is I get to say thank you. So thank you. Appreciate it. So I'm pastoring now in Cameron, Missouri. It's about 35. It's about an hour north on I-35 from Kansas City. It's a rural town of about 10,000. Now, when Dan got sick last year, um, and I couldn't, you know, any of you who've cared for a loved one who has died, you just can't focus. And I just told him, I can't. I can't keep preaching. It's just more than I can do. And so they called uh, Bill Kirkemo son of Ron Kirkmo, who lived a little south of Kansas City, and Bill drove up every single week to preach for me for almost a year. It was an amazing gift from that family. And um, so I was able to care for Dan, and they did everything for us. They brought us food. They mowed our lawns. They shoveled our driveways because it snows there. Laughter they brought us gifts, cards, gave us money. It was just an incredible outpouring of love from that congregation. Not just them, but primarily them, because that's where I was. So after Dan died, and I thought, what am what do I, I going to say to these guys once I start preaching again? What, what do you want me to say, Lord? And I thought, well, I could go to the Psalms of Lament, where we can let the Psalms just speak to those deepest places of hurt and sorrow in our lives. And then I thought, well, maybe I should find some passages on comfort because we've all been through so much and we need to be comforted. But then the thought came to me, what could be more important in a time of fear and confusion and angst than to be reminded of who we are? as a people of God, as followers of King Jesus. You know, Jesus calls us to a different way of life than those who are not followers of Jesus. He calls us to live in contrast to self-preservation, insisting on our own way, grasping for our rights, taking the best for ourselves, ignoring the needs of those less fortunate, lording it over others, listening only to those who reinforce what we already believe, excluding those who are different, loving only those who love us, making enemies at the least provocation. We are called to live differently than that. Dan used to talk about living at the intersection of two kingdoms. Was it this or was it this? I think it was this. I can... What, John? This and this. Ah, okay. I knew I didn't quite have it right. Yeah. He preached that over and over again. That, kingdomnomics, the apple sermon, you know, the things that you guys remember over and over again. So we live at the intersection of two kingdoms. Throughout scripture, we're called to do just that. We're called to live in the world against the grain of our human nature against the grain of self-preservation and getting our own way. You think about the Sermon on the Mount. It, it, don't pay back evil for evil. If someone takes your coat, give them your cloak. Someone strikes you on one cheek, give them the other. Someone asks you to walk a mile, walk two. And then you think about uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, kind, doesn't insist on its own way, not irritable or resentful. These against-the-grain ways of the kingdom don't come naturally to us. I mean, they may you, but they certainly don't come naturally to me. I taught an adult Sunday school class for 10 years when we were here, wholehearted. Any wholehearted alumni? Ah, yes! Yes, those were some of the greatest years of my life. I I really enjoyed that class. So we studied the book of Mark for three years. Gordon, I'm going to need that water. Thank you. We studied, studied Mark for three years. So you might not be surprised to know that's where I ended up for the sermons for my congregation in the fall. And so... Not being one who likes to waste time, I took all those sermons and put them into one, and that's what you get today. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in. Uh, we're looking at Mark eight to twelve, uh, and what I'm going to do is talk about some of the intense teaching, the intense against the grain teaching that Jesus does for his disciples as he's getting ready to go to the cross. He is trying his best to get them to understand what this is about. And so I'm going to pull those teachings out of those chapters. uh, Mark chapters 8 through 12. So in 817, sorry, 8-7, Jesus told them that he was going to undergo suffering and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. This was so different from the disciples' expectations of their Messiah, that Peter challenged Jesus. You know this story. And then Jesus rebuked him and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then, clarifying the mindset that they were to have, he says, If any want to become my followers, Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. The disciples were convinced that Jesus would soon take power and and throw off the Roman oppression. Instead, he calls them to deny themselves take up their cross, and lose their lives for his sake and the sake of the gospel. We talk about against the grain. This is our call too. He calls us to this every day and every season of our lives. We can respond to this difficult saying, this difficult teaching in several ways. We can ignore it and insist on thinking like Peter about a powerful and prestigious Messiah one who wants us to share in his greatness. Or we can determine that it's wrong-headed and unhealthy to live with this attitude of self-denial. I know people that think that way. We might declare Jesus is a killjoy who doesn't want us to have any fun. Can't we participate in Christianity without taking up a cross? Doesn't what he did for us give us a get out of jail free card and allow us to go on our merry way why do we have to live in the same self-sacrificing ways that jesus did jesus makes it clear that this self-denying cross-bearing losing our lives way of being in the world is not just for super disciples but it's essential for all believers He's calling us to live against the grain of concern for protecting our lives to a reckless, loving abandon that reflects the sacrifice of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and whose Holy Spirit empowers us to follow in his ways. Losing our lives for the sake of the gospel is the way to authentic life in Christ. In chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus tries again with the disciples. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and servant of all. No one wants to be last. The last pick for the team, the last to hear the news, the last in line at the potluck. I remember our 100th anniversary, and John Todd was sharing. I don't. Whoever asked John Todd to share, what were they thinking? <laughs> anyway, John shares with the whole group that he remembers me always being first in line at the party. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. I guess I don't like to be last either. Maybe that's what Jesus is getting at when he asks his followers to take last place. Instead of struggling to be first, he calls us to step aside and let others go ahead. This is consistent with his calling us to self-denial, cross-bearing, and losing our lives. Later in chapter 9, verse 38, the disciples revealed their exclusive perspective when they said to Jesus, We saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop them because he's not one of us. They viewed themselves as in a privileged position, exclusively connected to Jesus and his mission. But Jesus surprised them, saying, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. This is the only time John is the spokesperson for the disciples in Mark's gospel. Is he protecting Jesus? Is it misguided love? Is he defending his territory? You can't use Jesus' name. We own it. Not only do the disciples not understand the kind of Messiah Jesus was, but they don't recognize the work of the Spirit of Jesus. They even oppose it. The scribes made the same mistake when they said that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Both groups had the same attitude. They were insiders, saying the others weren't. You're were against us. This cliquish protectionism distracts the disciples from their true mission. The churches continue to have this problem. Throughout Christian history, if you're not with us, you're against us. You know what kind of attitude that perspective produces? We have a special status and you don't. We're on the inside, you're on the outside. We're in the know, you are ignorant. This is a far cry from the self-denying, cross-bearing, losing life, taking last place attitude to which Jesus calls us. The church needs to learn to see people from God's perspective. If we prematurely exclude someone for whom the, from whom, sorry, with whom the Spirit is working, we are impeding the work of God. Jesus was being consistent with his against, against the grain teaching in this passage. He didn't waste his energy protecting his exclusive rights. He had more important things to do than to fuss about who was in and who was out. Jesus saw this unknown exorcist as one who was moving toward him and no harm was being done. He knew that someone who was open to him and his ministry could very well join at some point. If he was excluded now, he might reject the gospel entirely. When we immediately exclude someone, we are subverting the prevenient grace of God and insisting on our own rights. We are grasping for control. This is a lesson in tolerance. We tend to condemn what we do not understand. Some actually like the role of bouncer, custodian, and gatekeeper. But Jesus calls us to give people the benefit of the doubt. We are not independent contractors of Jesus' spirit. We don't own it or get to make the rules or ultimately decide who's in and who's out or even where the line is. We hurt the church more with our exclusionary views than by accepting someone is questionable not the right kind of people as someone said to me recently remember Jesus identifies with the least of these the against the grain way of living calls us to err on the side of graceful risk we often don't give God time to work like the disciples we go chastise them and disrupt their movement toward God. Essentially, we're saying, you're not really one of us. You're against us until you're exactly like us. Back in the early 90s, the teens of this church went to Marie Calendar's to celebrate graduation. Some of you will remember this story. They met a balloon clown while they were there. They really impressed this guy. And he showed up at church the following Sunday. Later, he brought a friend of his to church. That friend brought his wife. Then the wife brought a colleague. Then the colleague brought her husband. They all came to faith and began to be involved in the life of this church. Those teens could have completely ignored that balloon clown. They could have decided that he wasn't like them. He wasn't a part of their group, that he didn't matter. But they included him in their fun and invited him to be a part of this community, and God used that. Philip Yancey says, We often surround ourselves with people We most want to be with, thus forming a club or a clique, not a community. Anyone can form a club. It takes grace, shared vision, and hard work to form a community. If they aren't against us, they are for us. In chapter 10, 13, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Jesus was on his way to the cross with disciples who didn't get it, despite all that he had said. And he still took time for the children. Earlier, Jesus had taken a child into his arms and said, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Children in Jesus' day lived under very bad conditions and were usually ignored by adults. A child was an example of powerlessness and was someone who had no ability to repay or reward the church, who welcomes its children, welcomes Jesus. Think think about that the next time you're asked to volunteer in the children's department. Jesus knew that children don't stay children. This congregation, as was mentioned earlier, has been a great sending congregation. And I was just trying to think of all the people. And Of course, it was mostly around my family, but... Uh, This morning, uh, as you were talking, Gordon, I thought about David Potter, raised up as a child in this church, missionary to Papua New Guinea and then uh, Vanuatu for a a lifetime of ministry. I think about Deanna McCluskey, who was raised in this church, who has pastored for many years and is now getting her PhD, hoping to, well, she's teaching adjunct right now. Um, I thought about uh, David Goodwin, grown up in this church and he is youth pastor at Central Church of the Nazarene in Lenexa, Kansas and also the district NYI president. Just had a new baby. And then I thought about my niece Tiffany and my daughter Mackenzie who were raised up here, went on to be worship leaders. Thought about my niece Celeste and my daughter Megan who grew up and married pastors and That's just the tip of the iceberg. If we went around the room, we'd be here all day talking about people that you know that were raised up here that went on, not just in ministry, but in all kinds of areas of service. Jesus knew that children grow up, and that's why we say, come to me, little children. Later in chapter 1035, Jesus talks about who is great in the kingdom in response to a request From James and John, here's what they said. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. The other disciples were not happy when they heard about this request. Anytime someone in the group tries to elevate themselves, it causes division. I remember being on sabbatical in Australia about 10 years ago. And Dan and I were discussing with the Bible College president at Brisbane the lack of church leadership in that country. We we were surprised to hear about it. And he told us about a cultural phenomenon in which those who are perceived to be more accomplished are mocked and criticized. They call it the tall poppy syndrome. Those who rise above are cut down. Jesus responded to the angry disciples You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. I love that phrase. Not so with you. They would make a great book title or a plaque to put on your wall to remind you, to remind us that we live in against the grain ways. Not so with you. As we look around at people jostling and stepping on and asserting themselves, as we watch people on social media, Competing to portray their lives of excess and self-centeredness. Not so with you. In the kingdom of God, greatness equals service. Have you ever wondered why greatness, position, and prestige is so important to us? Is it the advantages that we gain? The invitations that come to us? Is it our ability to make things happen? Is it the admiration we receive? Is it some lack we have in ourselves? We have to feel for Jesus, who was bearing his soul, trying to prepare those disciples for what was to come, and here they are, arguing about who was the greatest. If position and prestige are what motivate us, we are not in tune with what Jesus is trying to communicate with us either. Followers of Jesus demonstrate their greatness by being servants. Greatness is giving of ourselves. Authority and leadership come when we lose our lives for the sake of others when we forget our own interests for the interests of others when we learn to trust jesus enough to give him our all like the song said today to allow him to put us to work in service rather than claiming and strategizing for position ourselves in chapter 12:28 jesus was asked which commandment is the greatest he responded The first is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And then Romans 13 says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Loving neighbor is another of Jesus' against-the-grain teachings. In our society, we are constantly encouraged to disparage and mock our neighbors rather than love them. Why? Because they vote differently than we do. Because they respond to the pandemic differently than we do. Because they treat the earth differently than we do. Because they look at pregnancy differently than we do because they look at skin color differently than we do, because they have a different religion than we do, and on and on and on. We live in an era of enemies where our natural tendency to fear and anger are fanned into flame, especially in this time when we've been isolated trying to protect ourselves and those we love. We feel the need for someone to blame Someone to rage against. We are being manipulated toward hatred. And we fall for it because we're tired, bored, hopeless, and because these things come more naturally to us than loving our neighbor. Some of us make a feeble effort to overcome this natural tendency by loving others in manageable ways. We measure out our love and control increments to certain people instead of abandoning ourselves in trust and obedience to God. We excuse ourselves from loving our neighbor, embracing the lie, we are not our brother's keeper. They are not our brothers. They are not us. They are them. They are enemies. But even those in the category of enemy are not excluded from the love of neighbor teaching. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Wesley famously said, we should chiefly exercise our love toward them that most shock our way of thinking or our temper or our knowledge or the desire we have that others should be as virtuous as we wish ourselves to be. Our meager love is anemic compared to the steadfast, and everlasting love of God. I think one of the reasons so many of the younger generation have left the church is they see so little of these against the grain ways of living modeled among the saints. Many who call themselves Christians have substituted counterfeit expressions of faith, like religious legalism, political ideologies, and social issues. They've substituted those for the self-denying, cross-carrying, life-losing, last-place-taking, inclusive, child-welcoming, loving-servant attitudes. But these are the attitudes that reflect the life and love of Jesus. These are the ways Jesus taught his disciples as he was on his way to the cross. These are the ways of the kingdom. May they become more and more the ways of the church. Amen.